want to welcome everybody to this evening's Mauer Report. Before we begin, i got to remind everybody, tonight's views and opinions are those of the host and guests and do not represent any sponsor, affiliate, or network partner. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, like, and share, and all that fun stuff. If you haven't heard that by now, you probably need to listen to other shows because they probably do a better job of it than me, but that's okay. My guest tonight is uh, Dr. Dan Shaw, uh, the emotions wizard on Twitter. Um, emotionswizard.com, is that... Where I should be pointing people at tonight? Uh, that's one thing. It's actually uh, my website's the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com, like your five senses. And my last name, by the way, is Hill, H-I-L-L. <laughs> what did I say? Shaw, I believe. Oh, good grief. Right out the chute, I messed the guy's name up. And it's a simple name, too. I can't even explain why, where I was at. But I, I, admit, I, I admit I've never been asked to spell it. <laughs> well... Welcome to the Mauer Report. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> By all means. So, if you forgive me, I'll forgive you. How's that? <laughs> well, I think we're all off to a roaring start. So, I, I, you've got a bunch of books out there, and you're you're kind of known for facial recognition and not necessarily well facial recognition and describing what people are saying without saying. So, give me a little bit of background and what got you into that and progress forward. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm going, to, I'm going to slightly correct the terminology. Facial recognition would be your identity, uh, knowing your name, just like you have cameras in the you know, British underground, the subway systems that say who you are. Uh, what I really specialize is, is in emotion recognition. In other words, there are muscle activities in your face uh, that reflect how you are feeling in the moment. So that's my specialty. And the strange way I got into it was I was working for a consulting firm specializing in the customer experience, trying to ghostwrite a book for the company president. One day, someone he knew at IBM sends over an article about the breakthroughs in brain science, including the conservative estimation that at least 95% of our mental activity is not fully conscious. And I go, oh, my God, is that interesting? And honestly, within about five minutes, I decided to launch my company. 95%. Yeah, that's a conservative estimation. Uh, I've seen the New York Times reports that it could be 98%. That's that's massive. I mean, that's like everything. Yeah, no, it completely changes. We, we've lived a, a fundamental lie in Western culture for <laughs> 300 plus years, starting with Descartes, the French philosopher who said at the height of the Enlightenment era, I, I think, therefore I am. Uh, it's much more I feel, and therefore I'm chaotic, and I exist, but I am a true human being, and deal with it. That, that's that's much more reality than this lofty notion that we're rational beings who make careful decisions. And I, I thought many ways when I read the statistics, I said, well, that's liberating because I think that's reality. Um, you know, that's why I see in the tabloids in the grocery store and not this lofty ideal of the rational discourse. Well, I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, the first time that I really came to understand emotions, well, kind of, I mean, I'm not saying I'm on your level, but the first time I started paying attention to it when I was, when I was playing poker, right? Cause you have to, you're trying to read sure. how, how excited somebody is or not excited or, you know, and they're probably playing the same game as you're playing. So, but I never thought about it as a consumer based interaction. So what, what kind of things are people doing or telling when they're, I guess, checking out would be the case or what kind of things are we looking for? 
Sure. Well, I've applied this in all sorts of realms from sports to politics to, to certainly business, personal relationships and more. In a business context, probably the good reason to employ my company over these 20 years, and we've in fact done work for more than half of the world's top 100 advertisers, is because people lie. Guess what? They're getting paid to be participants. <laughs> they are sitting in a focus well, group, and when the I, moderator says, will you buy, everyone raises their bloody hands, time, even though it's not time true. Up. Time out. Politicians lie. Uh, oh, well, I gotta just get the news sound effect out here. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, and every player who says I'm not injured and I can go back in, coach. Um, yeah, that's always accurate too. Well, I, I think I mean we've come to be grips with those, but how, so you help sort out the the people who are saying yes, I'll buy from the people who actually buy. Sure. Lip service um, happens all the time. One of my favorite things was in the New York magazine. There was this guy who was recruited into every study because the clients and the moderators loved him because he always said he adored the product. And finally, one time he said he didn't, and they stopped inviting him. But in the meantime, he was paying for his rent in Manhattan by going to focus groups and giving lauded uh, answers to the questions. So how has technology changed this for, for people? Because I imagine 20 years ago, when you started, people weren't necessarily, as I dive into my phone here, you know, as, I think I think we've lost some expression or have we gained some in the real human action interaction world? Well, in my book, Famous Faces Decoded, I actually went through and looked at celebrities across four eras of American life. Uh, so going all the way back to the silent generation uh, and, you know, stars who probably grew up, honestly, in the early part of the 20th century to today. And there were some changes. Probably the most notable one was that the aversive emotions of disgust and contempt went up a bit. And happiness, especially robust happiness, came down a bit, and the lowest, most begrudging form of happiness has increased. So I would essentially say we are a, a less satisfied culture than we once were. I don't know that I can say we're less emotive because, frankly, uh, there's a lot of anger in this culture. We're in a very politically divisive time. And so I, I can't say we're less emotive, but certainly the technology has changed a lot. Uh, to specifically answer your question, when I started 20 years ago, we used a camera. We would mount it on the end of the table, drop in a cassette, and record the person. Uh, today, we might get video files that are attached on a smartphone. We are working from stream video. You've got webcams, uh, you know, little cameras we might put on the table. I mean, the whole game has changed in terms of speed uh, and size of equipment that's required. And then there's the whole specter of automation, which we can get into if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. Tell me what where automation. Fa- I mean, I, I, um, artificial intelligence has to factor in everything we're talking about anymore. Oh, absolutely. The Economist magazine out of England has, in fact, referred to this as the emerging facial industrial complex, because <laughs> what you have, I know it's a, it's quite Orwellian, and in fact, if you go back and read 1984. Uh, face crime is one of the things that the character Winston is potentially guilty of because he's revealing his true feelings in response to government propaganda. And, of course, you can't have any feelings that are encountered to what the government wants you to feel. So if you look at the specter of automation, it's really got two drivers. One is out of Silicon Valley as well as up in Seattle, thanks to Amazon and Microsoft. And that's kind of the... Uh, capitalist version of it, trying to moder- you know, monitor citizens, but really consumers. Uh, 
the extent to which the U.S. government is in this game, uh, I don't entirely know. But one time someone with ties to the defense industry told me that they are monitoring cadets at West Point 24-7, uh, trying to assess their leadership capability, their emotional stability, and so forth. So that's on this side of the earth. And then you've got a Chinese firm tied, of course, to the Chinese government, as most of their big firms are. Uh, I don't remember the firm's name offhand. I think it's something like Baiku. Uh, they're valued at over $2 billion and are intimately involved in the surveillance going on in that uh, northwest province of China uh, where the citizens are mo- mostly of Turkish descent. Yeah, the Chinese the Chinese ones is interesting where they start tr- giving social grades and this whole mess. Based oh on yeah, the, I mean that scares that scares the out of me. I almost said oh it, it, oh it should the whole the whole thing. I mean it's uh, you know <laughs> it's certainly what the Chinese are doing. I mean you know where Hong Kong's gonna go. I mean someone said not long ago. I think it was Marine Dowd in the New York Times. King Kong is dealing with Hong Kong because yeah the Chinese government is obviously that massive. And this use and the convergence with AI, uh, this is, you know, the funny thing is I just stumbled into this in 1998. I read that article from the IBM guy. I said, huh, emotions are really interesting. How can you capture and quantify emotions? How could I make a living or investigate this? And frankly, I didn't know if I could make a living from it. I just thought it was really, like, fascinating stuff. So I came into it really innocently and said, well, I can probably help companies stop wasting their money and get a more accurate read. And then I found also to other fun ways to play with it. But by degrees, I came to realize that, you know, I'm not responsible per se. There's other people who came here before me. But this is really going to be a profound social change. Uh, this link to AI is one of the most massive developments in our society, I think, quite honestly, going forward in terms of its implications, uh, in terms of national security, the military, democracy, capitalism. I mean, you couldn't get much bigger than this topic I happened to stumble into 20 years ago. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it has a lot of uh, branches off the tree, so to speak. But you never thought about going to Vegas and just playing blackjack or poker? And <laughs> uh, Well, well, I, I do have an answer for you there. So first of all, no one's played poker with me for a long time. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, you, I, but in Vegas, I'm sure, I mean, you could get away with it for a while. Well, I, I actually play blackjack more than poker. My dad has, who's quite a card player, has a little pretty easy system to follow. And the last time I played any serious cards, well, actually twice. So once it was in Lake Tahoe, and my dad gave me this, the most wonderful deal of the century. He said, I'll stake you the money. I get half your earnings if you win, and I'll absorb all your losses if you lose. And I quit when I was $1,000 ahead, and he took 500 of it. Uh, the other time was in a Rotterdam casino. Again, playing blackjack. I mean, the odds against this are astronomical. I won, I'm pretty sure, the first 12 hands. I lost the thir- the proverbial 13th evil, unlucky <laughs> hand and quit and took my earnings. Um, but, uh, yes, it, it could help me in poker, certainly. So you, you mentioned how we are more um – well, media is more available to us, and I'm thinking yes. about I'm thinking about like the election cycle we're in. Mm-hmm. What, are some, what are some cues people should be watching for as we're trying to decipher when they? I'll just come out and say it when a politician's lying to us, or really, or really like I mean, knowingly just out there out telling us not telling the truth. Because I I think there's always a twist of a lie, no matter what they're saying. But that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, the, <laughs> the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth are three different things. 
And given human nature, good luck getting the truth and nothing but the truth out of pretty much anybody because we lie to ourselves. You know, uh, do I look good in this, this, uh, suit, this dress? Um, you know, have, have I aged at all? Certainly not. You know, all those kinds of things. Um, probably the most important thing here is that in terms of facial coding, there is no lying muscle in the face. If there was, from an evolutionary point of view, this would be bad news. Uh, your enemies would kill you instantly. So that, that's not a factor. And if you had it also in a modern context, uh, then the, the uh, plastic surgeon and the Botox center would probably take care of it. So the things you have to look for, it's kind of like a, a checklist, a pecking order. Uh, certainly you're looking for deviances from people's normal emoting patterns because we're habitual creatures and we do have patterns after all. Uh, so let's just take something really interesting and obvious, Bernie Madoff. So this is the biggest Ponzi scheme of all time. His last name is almost like a cosmic joke, Madoff. He made off with other people's money. I mean, just think about it. It's amazing. <laughs> What did Bernie show? First of all, he hardly emoted. And that's interesting already because I've also been on shows where I've looked at uh, psycho killers. And they tend not to emote as much as most of us. And if they do emote, they kind of emote in strange ways that aren't appropriate. Uh, and they probably do that because your emotions turn on in no small part because you care about something. So if you don't care about people you're killing off, uh, you may not show a lot of emotion. And Bernie showed very little. The other thing Bernie showed was contempt which is a sign you smirk and you know the corner of the mouth it shows that you don't respect or trust the other parties well if you're swindling them you know contempt is a pretty natural place to go to because you don't think they deserve the truth after all so i can run through more of the checklist but that's at least a teaser for you well, that's good i mean it's an interesting thing to try to figure out especially you know watching from afar cuz i think we all gut feeling wise have a better under think, think we have a better understanding of when somebody's uh being dis dishonest with us, I think. Yeah, and, and actually, we have particularly sensitive, uh, you know, nerve endings or whatever. I don't remember exactly the, all the science of it, but the stomach and the face are extremely sensitive places, and that's why we want to, you know, we talk, call someone two faced or so forth. You know, we're really keen. We do key in on the face because that is the most reliable indicator of how someone's feeling is in the face. Uh, the distance from our eyebrows to our mouth has been called the most valuable 25 square inches of visual territory on the planet. But after that, gut reactions are, are a pretty good thing to listen to. So you, in your famous Faces book, I, you sent me a copy of that, and I was trying to pick through it today, uh, you talked about Ryan Leaf versus Peyton Manning, which is one of the greatest debates I've ever been part of because I was a, you know, a young guy who knew everything at that time in my life and would have bet a lot of money that Ryan Leaf would have been a better quarterback. So, But you were able to kind of decipher through, and you, you know, now as the older man in my life, I see I see, the, see what you were going for and see what you did. But uh, <laughs> but you were in the moment, and you had a better analysis than I did. So what, 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 help me set that up. Well, one of the interesting things is I started my company in 1998 in San Diego. Guess who also arrived in 1998 in San Diego? <laughs> Ryan Leaf. And uh, being a, a newborn facial coder, I was, of course, curious and checked the guy out and went, oh, my God, this isn't going to go well. I mean, think about it. One of the things you need to do as a quarterback is you're in the pocket. You don't have a lot of time. You've got to make quick decisions. You, you've got to be prescient and disciplined. And Ryan Leaf was anything but disciplined uh, as a person. I mean, from his eating patterns to how he interacted with his teammates, his openness to learning the Chargers system. 
I mean, all of those went off the rail immediately and, you know, never really improved. Well, I mean, which is stunning, right? Because I, th- I think we all believe that these guys come in, get the big money, and want to be better. But everything you just told me says, yeah, I don't want to be here. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I remember many years ago, because I also followed basketball, um, trying to remember, he came out of Syracuse, and he got picked pretty high by the Nets, you know, like number five pick in the draft. And I had watched him play up at Syracuse, and I went, oh, man, you just wasted your money and your draft pick, because I just didn't see what you were talking about. I didn't see that drive for excellence. I mean, anger can get you in trouble, uh, certainly, from thrown out of the game for one thing. Uh, but it can also cause you to really focus and be determined and want to make progress. Uh, look at Michael Jordan. There, there was no absence of anger there. Uh, you know, Peyton Manning actually shows a good deal of anger, but it's a very muted, disciplined anger. He's focused. And, uh, you know, that can be a, a good quality for achievement. As I say, speaking of Peyton, he seems to be the most level person that I've seen on TV a lot. Like, he never gets too high, net too low. It's probably hard to tell what he's actually feeling. I'm really wrong. You're wrong in that, and I was surprised because I went in and said, well, this is going to be your ultimate poker face guy. Um, there is a discernible level of anger evident on his face frequently uh, because he is so focused, and he has such high standards for himself uh, as a player, as a pitch man, basically anything that he does. <laughs> So those eyebrows are knitted together and lowered like he's lowering the boom on his opponent. Uh, it is a really characteristic expression of him. He'll also go to a bit of disgust back when he was a player. I really enjoyed it when he yanked his helmet off uh, when he came out after a series that hadn't gone well. I mean, if he looked at someone who, like, dropped the pass or didn't make the block, he would show disgust. His upper lip would flare in a sign of anger and disgust. He was not pleased, <laughs> you know, with what he had just uh, witnessed. It, so, who is the most notable sports personality like that we should be paying attention to currently? Like, just lays it all out there, and we can just visibly see what they're thinking without without them saying it. Oh wow, that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, because you got so many different sports. I mean, I guess I'm going to go to the preeminent basketball player of our era, LeBron James. Uh, you might remember the Warriors taunting him as a crybaby, and it's interesting because they're they're onto at least a half truth in their case. A really characteristic expression of LeBron James is he'll pout. He, the corners of his mouth will pull down in an expression of sadness and and also disgust. And sometimes that has to do with a ref's call, uh, his teammates play, maybe his own, uh, that he's losing the game for once, uh, all those sorts of things. But he's a bit of a powder. Um, and uh, I can see how they went there with him. But, of course, he got his revenge at least once by beating them. Uh, so be careful, who, be careful about the name calling. So, okay, um, you start, you've recently started the podcast. What made you want to get into doing this? I wasn't really expecting to do it, quite honestly. I was just rooting around one day saying, huh, what's out there? Where, where are some podcasts I might want to be on? Because, of course, yours first and foremost. And um, I oh, came time, across time, this. Time, time out. He's been begging for, what, four months? I don't want to say begging. Begging's not right. But he has been gently poking me. And um, I want to thank you for that because, I mean, I get I get a lot of people just sending me stuff and then, you know, you never hear from them again. So that doesn't tell me anything. But you kept after it, which works, by the way, for everybody else. Well, 
thinking well, about it. So. Thank you. But I, well, what I liked about the show is I thought it was going to be a really candid conversation and that you were going to have the guts to kind of go wherever the subject you know took you. And that appeals to me. I mean, I'm an innovator. After all, I challenged the entire market research industry by saying, let's forget about the words and the ratings, or at least let's add something more to the picture. Uh, so I really like that. As to how I got into suddenly starting uh, my podcast, which is, I guess I'll promote myself for a second here, called yeah, <laughs> Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight on the New Books Network. One day I just came across this fact that this guy was looking for host and it was interviewing authors of new books. And I'm, I'm an inveterate reader. I said, well, this is great. One, I get free books. Second, this guy does the editing of the podcast because I'm terrible technically. So he's going to take care of that entire net nightmare. And he doesn't care, you know, who I interview and how I handle it. He basically just gives me free reign. So I went, oh, that's a pretty sweet deal. And the guy gets the, the, the platform started back when there was merely 10,000, uh, podcasts as opposed to a million or whatever we're at now. It gets more than 1.3 million downloads a month. Um, so it's a pretty cool thing. And, uh, I just said, I, I can't pass that up. That's interesting. That is interesting. That's pretty cool too. Cause yeah, the technical stuff. Well, you, you understand already. We've, we've talked a little bit about that before. So <laughs> yeah. And, and that is not my sweet spot. Whatever, whatever other talents I have, I, I, I'm about the level of a hamster when it comes to tech. Well, you, you, you what, um, you have seven patents, so you're not, um, uh, naive or dumb by any stretch of the imagination. So what, what are these patents in? Well, they have to do with scoring because the person who originated facial coding, you might even argue, was Leonardo da Vinci because he got into dissecting. Uh, it's a little gross, but he got into actually trying to figure out how people emote and the muscles in their face. And he involved in he got involved in dissection to figure that out. Uh, the next person who really took the ball forward on facial coding was uh, Charles Darwin who figured out that you know, your emotions were really central to your survival and thriving and uh, that in your face you best reflected and communicated your emotions. Uh, the fact that the face is the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin, so it gives you quick, real-time data, uh, that facial expressions are universal, meaning that the triggers will vary by person and culture, obviously, uh, by circumstance, but on the other hand, the underlying physiology is the same. Well, the next person after that was a man named Paul Ekman, who was kind of the inspiration for the Lie to Me show that was on Fox as a primetime hit in the early 2000s. Well, Paul was, of course, an academic. He never had a scoring system. He didn't have norms. Uh, he never meant to take it out of the you know academic lab. Uh, well, I was out there in real life, beyond academia, and I had to figure out ways this was going to work, you know, in a more, you know, everyday setting. So the patents have a lot to do with how am I going to score this? What are the systems I'm going to use? How do I derive the most knowledge from the data I'm collecting? So beneficial for everybody, not just you, because you could have your secret sauce, so to speak, and just keep it to yourself and ramp up a whole bunch of stuff, but you've kind of put it out there for people. Um, I very much have in Famous Faces Dakota in terms of the secret sauce. I mean, you know, the stuff I got from Dr. Ekman was not in the public purview. Uh, still isn't really in terms of, uh, you know, a, a thorough covering of it as I did in the book. Uh, I just decided at this point, you know, hell's bells. I'm just going to put it out there for people. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, the, the scoring norms and some of those things that I had to derive over time, I, I still have held on to that for now. So as a... Uh 
I got a wave hello to my chatters here because they make the show great. And they're, they're taking me down a little different rabbit hole, but I think it's going to circle back to where I want to be. So we're going to go with that for a second. Uh, Germantown Runner wants me to ask you, have you ever worked with attorney on court cases as an expert witness? Um, not as an expert witness exactly, but I've been involved in two interesting uh, court cases. One would be much more notable than the other, I suppose, to outsiders. Uh, here in Minneapolis-St. Paul, uh, we had the largest settlement ever against the diocese uh, for sexual abuse. I had a childhood friend, or not a friend from childhood, but a friend who was sexually abused as a boy. And I did some pro bono work. And it was really interesting because the number two person in the diocese in St. Paul was none other than the brother of Obama's chief of staff at the time. And uh, the attorney said to me, well, the guy's inscrutable. I just can't figure him out at all. And I said, nobody's inscrutable. Uh, do you have videotape of the depositions? And they did. And I studied it and I brought back to them and said, look, you know, these are the 10 or 12 places where I would probe because his responses emotionally are really incongruous or interesting, uh, at odds with his words and so forth. I don't think they made much use of it, regrettably. As was true in the other case, I, I was down in New Mexico, Albuquerque, and uh, a drunk driver who had been served more drinks than he should have uh, in a restaurant bar place uh, killed the two daughters of a Navajo couple on the highway. And the restaurant chain had gotten basically a hold of the, the guy who ran the bar at the company, and he was nervous on the stand. And I told the attorneys, if you just stay with him and let me feed you questions based on how he's emotionally responding, you can, you can win this case. And they said, that's just too hardball for us. And I said, well... If you want to win, <laughs> I can help you win. If you want to lose, I can let you lose by stepping back. And they didn't want to go there. So unfortunately, that case resulted in a loss for the for the law firm. But I have always been interested in that application, quite obviously. I'm, I'm of course, fascinated by movies uh, that involve uh, you know facial expressions. I just watched an old Jimmy Stewart movie the other night called, I believe, Anatomy of a Murder, for instance. Yeah, and those listeners out there familiar with this show know I've had uh, James Fitzgerald on the Unabomber FBI profiler who used the power of words for cracking that case wide open. So yeah, this, well, I know Ekman, one of his favorite things for catching a liar is make them tell their story chronologically in reverse. And apparently they don't do it real well. That is a trip, right? That, I mean, that's just, as I'm sitting here, you know, just trying to like tell my day in reverse. I'm trying to... <laughs> <laughs> You'd think I was lying what I had for lunch because I can't. <laughs> Tell me again, Jim. What's your first name? <laughs> I'm not sure right now. Calm down. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> Man, that's a, that's a good one. I'm, I have to uh, practice that at some point here. Just get back to you. Do some field research. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, so speaking of, of crimes and other things, uh, you're... you're um, in St. Paul, Minnesota right now, um, in the hotbed of everything that has kind of fired up over the last, goodness, three weeks, two weeks, three weeks now? I think Seems it's like 11 days since the the death of George Floyd. Maybe it's 12 days, somewhere in that range. Well, this whole quarantine thing has my whole timeline thrown off of forever. That would be true. We are, <laughs> as if we weren't in a warped, strange time to begin with, now we have the biggest unrest uh, racially, at least since probably 1968. It is, you know, just, uh, 
you know, forget the uh, what was the, the the Burger King Whopper. This is like the double Whopper. So take t- tell me a little bit about how things are actually there because we, I mean, obviously I hear how things are being presented from the mainstream media, but I'm not sure I'm seeing an accurate picture because, well, they have their way of presenting things. Well, there, there's some interesting aspects. Probably one of the most peculiar was, you know, we have this saying in Minnesota, Minnesota nice. And we, we are generally really nice, earnest people. Uh, but it also comes with a bit of, uh, you know, indirect or subversive, uh, uh, anger or, or so forth. Cause, you know, when you bottle up all your emotions, they, they still gotta go someplace. So Minnesota Nice has a little bit of an undertow. And the interesting thing is that the mayors of both cities and I believe the governor all came out after the initial uh, demonstrations got uh, more unseemly and violent and so forth and said that all of the agitators who were the most uh, virulent were out-of-towners, you know, that we couldn't possibly imagine that they were Minnesotans acting like this. Uh, and they even claimed, I think, that it was 80% of them were outside the state. It turned out to be exact reverse. Uh, 80% of them were residents of Minnesota, which did mean some people crossed over from, you know, wherever, Iowa, Wisconsin, Chicago, someplace else, uh, and showed up here to join in. Uh, but that that was really peculiar and interesting to observe. As a facial coder, if you just look at those excruciating uh, nearly nine minutes, uh, what catches my eye is the, the nonchalance of the policeman. Uh, responsible, and he even had just the little makings of not only some anger on the face, but also a little bit of a smile, um, which is pretty unsettling. I, I don't wish for anyone to die from asphyxiation uh, like that. Um, what is the media missing? I mean, by degrees, they're coming out with the fact that although this is a pretty affluent and in many ways uh, prides itself on being a progressive community, um, we have our issues. We have a huge gap between white and black households in terms of house ownership as well as income levels. Uh, we're talking somewhere in the range of better than two to one or even approaching three to one differences on some of these economic factors. Um, so there's a lot of, t- you know, tinder in the fire. Um, and yeah, the media would be, a little adverse to going there because it, it punctures this, uh, you know, greater Minnesota story. Uh, at least one of the channels, my wife tells me, I'm not sure if this is accurate, has a reporter whose husband is the president of the police union. Uh, could that change how that particular channel covers the news? Well, I think it might. Um, so, you know, as always, you know, the truth and nothing but the truth, uh, again, re- remains a, an elusive, interesting game. I, I found it interesting that like the the first place they burned down was Target, because Target's world headquarters are in Minneapolis. It, it just struck me as odd. Um. Yeah. I, well, I don't even know. You know, most Americans like I think at one point I I have in my book uh, on democracy because I wrote a book on democracy called Two Cheers for Democracy and something like uh, four out of ten Americans think Judge Judy is on the Supreme Court. <laughs> so, you know, you, you can never assume a great deal of knowledge. Do Minnesotans actually know that Target is headquartered here? Um, they may not. So um, it just might seem like a, a nice, ripe Target and something they are, you know, pun intended, that they are familiar with and know they've got a lot of different kinds of 
products and if that's what they want to get that might be a place to go besides your usual obvious liquor store and so forth um, but it is peculiar in a sense because certainly it's a big employer and uh, a source of pride in Minnesota because we have a lot of Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, that, that's kind of embarrassing to think about that Judge Judy's on the Supreme Court and I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> you liar. I knew you thought that she was on the Supreme Court. Some days, right? I mean, it's it's amazing, though, those kind of things that come out. You know, you go, that, there's no way that's an accurate pool of anything. And then you real, then you start talking to some people and you go, Maybe that number's low. Yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> it's really peculiar when you get out there. And, you know, one of the big lies I think that can go around is this notion that we've got all the, again these supremely informed consumers as well as voters. Um, you know, most Americans did not go to college or complete college, and that even leaves aside the question whether they learned anything in college. And, I, and I'm not trying to be snide at all because even though I have a PhD, I, I, I'm not particularly respectful of you know how valuable academia was to me. Most of my learning came on my own uh, outside the hallways and, and classrooms. So, um, but yeah, the truth of the matter is, human beings, uh, yeah, we, we kind of wander life in a fog. So, I, as I sit there and wonder, where does this all? I mean, where does? I mean, we were quarantined and then we have all this mass uh, public uprising where where does this hold where does this end where do we all kind of get i hate the phrase the new normal but i'm kind of just looking for something a little less uh, fiery um you know i believe we are in for more than we have gone through so far um you know a lot of the uh Payments that Congress authorized will run out in July. That's floated no small number of folks in terms of meeting household expenses and rents and so forth. Um, you know, the COVID-19, uh, you know, from what I read and even a conversation with someone in the medical field the other day, they thought it was a hoot, the notion that we'll actually have a vaccine by even, say, January of 2021, uh, let alone uh, a safe one that we can mass produce. Um, you know, I don't wish to be a downer. I, I want this thing to be over as much as you and anybody else, but it's hard to imagine we're out of this even within the next year and the economic turmoil of that. Uh, and then you add in, you know, how countries might act. I mean, go back to, uh, the Great Depression, which, you know, fed right into World War II. Uh, you know, leaders like to blame someone else, go to war with someone else to, uh, uh, offset people's, you know, frustrations with their own government. Uh, they like to take advantage of weakness in others who are down economically. I mean, we could be in for a whole host of, uh, ills here before we're done. Uh, I certainly pray it's otherwise. It's going to take some good leadership if we can just find it. Um, but, um, you know, you're, you're talking fear and anger. Uh, two of the most primal emotions being ramped up to the nth degree. And I, as I'm sitting here thinking about, I mean, as we're in this new age of digital technology, you mentioned Zoom, you're much better at it now. We're conducting a lot more business via Zoom or wherever we're on Skype tonight, but wherever it is, we're not necessarily all, I mean, we wouldn't have been in the same room to start with, but for those other, there's a lot of things that would have been happening in the same room that aren't now. How has that changed how people are interacting? Like, does that make that easier? Because you could actually sit there and look at the person instead of... Well, I... I you see where I'm yeah, no, yeah, no, potentially it could actually make us better at understanding what's going down. 
Um, you know, we're, we're a lot more like Watson than Sherlock Holmes. We're not very good detectives. We, we tend to be suckers for the words and kind of want to believe we're not getting, you know, lied to. And that leaves aside just language differences, the kind of the slipperiness of words anyway, uh, how articulate we are. Um, you know, on the face, there's a lot of information to be picked up. And in a Zoom call, you do have some issues like buffering and time delays and can flatten the images a bit. But on the other hand, it, it might free you up a bit to play the observer, uh, detached observer a bit more and uh, finally gather those signals that are available. Because it is interesting. I find myself watching a bit more than I normally would because I yeah. don't have as much to do. I don't know. Which is different because, yeah. I mean, it's the same time, it's the same people, but seeing who's bored and who, <laughs> <laughs> who's not paying attention to a word that's being said. and <laughs> Yeah, no, even before Zoom, you know, I was always interested when I was in my business pitch meetings or whatever the case may be or at a party. You know, what's, what's that expression I see across the room? You know, what's going on there? Um, it, it does make life more interesting. There's no question about it. So talk to me about this mask phenomenon because there's a lot of um – Expression being lost because people are covering their face. Oh my so, God! Yes. So, how do we recover that? I mean, while well, we're in this period of being masked, I guess obviously once they come off, it takes care of itself. But uh, we're kind of screwed because the mask does hide so much. Uh, about seventy-five percent of your emoting uh, is you know below and hidden by the mask, below where the mask begins. And we index a lot higher on fear and surprise based on just the upper part of the face alone, i.e. the eyebrows, forehead, and eye area, uh, because, you know, our, our eyes go wider when we're trying to take in something new that we might have to deal with <laughs> and flee from or fight. Uh, so, you know, sight, vision, perceptions, fear and surprise all go together really naturally and kind of more of uh, how we respond to something new in terms of positive and negative, things like smiles, anger, disgust, and so forth, is much more in the lower part of the face. So we get all the alertness and curiosity. We don't get any of the kind of nuance of how they're feeling based on the mask being in the way. Which has to, it's a struggle. I mean, I know I find myself when you're interacting with a person – you say have a good day to somebody, you know, they will, you know what, right? And they're like, yeah, you too. And you're not sure if they actually are. Well, I know most of the time they aren't really happy about it because they're, you know, a cashier or whatever. But it used to be because, they're, you know, you're just exchanging words at that point. There's no smile. There's no other emotion that goes with it. Yeah, well, we should have a new version of the emojis and they're all just taken away for a year and you can only show the mask. Um, you know, that's kind of what's going on in some ways. Um, so, hey. Emojis. What a great, what a great bunch of things that we really didn't ever need, didn't ever need. <laughs> yeah, and, um, some of them aren't terribly accurate in terms of showing the emotion that I think people think they're showing when they choose one, but that, that's, that's a topic for another day. I was going to say, how do, how do we go from like six to like 900, by the way? I'm confused. <laughs> some people will send me. Well, and, and like, now that we that? have people. Some, I get some ones with them. I'm like, what? I'm like, you know, like, what is that? <laughs> well, it's kind of like junk food. You know, we have far more junk food than we need as well. I, I was a student at Oxford University and I remember going to a British grocery store. And uh, even before the Americans got there, the British had grocery stores where like a third of them, I'm talking about large grocery stores, like a third of them, I'm not 
kidding you, were devoted to junk food. And I said to myself, my God, if junk food was the barometer, England would still be a superpower. <laughs> um, uh, emojis are kind of the junk food of communication. We can't figure out how to say something well in an email, so we slap on a few emojis, some of which are contradictory to one another, and, and away we go. <laughs> I'm giving you the thumbs up, by the way, just so you know. Ah, excellent. <laughs> um, you liar. <laughs> before we forget, where where can people find the books and find – give me all that rundown again because we've got about 20 minutes left and I don't want to get out of the run out of the show and not have you get you all your, your books and stuff out there. Sure. Well, the, the easiest one-stop shopping to figure out what Dan's up to, uh, you know, is, again, the three obligatory W's and then sensorylogic.com, as in your five senses. So there you'll find my three latest books, for instance. One is the famous Faces Decoded, uh, which is on celebrities and EQ and uh, secret sauce and facial coding. If you want to despair about politics and leaders, both domestically and internationally, I've got two cheers for democracy, how emotions drive leadership style. And then because I'm so interested in visuals, I actually wrote a book on art and how people respond to famous art, and that's called First Blush. Now, I do have a weekly uh, blog, and that's at emotionswizard.com, and it's called Faces of the Week. And again, the podcast is called uh, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and that's on the New Books Network. So I've been asked to ask you about the president and how he interacts with people. So I'm asking the question. Okay, and um, in two hours I will be done with my answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, to start, now we'll just um, we'll save sure. part well, two for <laughs> the, the, the first thing that's going to surprise a lot of people is they're going to assume, uh, not erroneously, that it's anger that defines Trump. And it's true in that just as Trump speaks in superlatives, he also, when he emotes anger, he emotes it very intensely. Uh, when you're really angry, for instance, the mouth will form a horizontal funnel, almost like a dog whose bones been taken away from it. Uh, you can see that in Hillary Clinton. You can also see that in Trump. You can see it in Trump, for instance, when he gave the, I guess I'll have to call it infamous press conference regarding Charlottesville, and he said there were good people on both sides of the issue. Um, and a lot of people, you know, including some of his members of his cabinet, disagreed and resigned shortly thereafter. Um, so anger is certainly evident for Trump, and anger is an emotion is you want to hit out, uh, you want to attack to retaliate, and that's no small part of Trump's emotional uh, MO or arsenal. But what's more interesting, I think, is what people would not expect, and that is he indexes really high on sadness relative to the other people in my celebrities book. Uh, in fact, uh, Richard Nixon, who has more than a few similarities to Trump, was the other president who really got up there on sadness. So you can see it in Trump in the way that the corners of his mouth droop. Uh, he has a wince sometimes in the cheek. And I think it has to go back probably psychologically to his relationship with his parents, which was pretty fraught and often distant. And his sister said that he compensated, even as a boy, by basically going around and declaring that he was the great I am. That was their nickname for him in the family. So the narcissism, which has 
isolated him from other people because it's not well received. None of us like someone who's a braggart. Uh, has meant that there's always been an element of disappointment and loneliness to Trump. Uh, that's still true in the White House. He's not described as having really any intimate friends beyond his family, practically. Uh, and the other emotion is disgust. Um, you know, listeners may or may not know that Trump is a germaphobe. Uh, so he had a brother who died young from alcoholism. Trump doesn't drink. Uh, he doesn't smoke. He doesn't like to shake hands. And if you take it a bit metaphorically, you could apply that disgust to how he feels about uh, foreigners, perhaps women at times, if he's not involved with them, or even when he's involved with them, who knows. Uh, but those three emotions pretty much define Trump. And what's interesting is how low he is on sat- on happiness, rather. Uh, which, you know, politicians generally glad hand and uh, smile a lot, mug for the camera. Uh, you know, he's all about scowling instead. You, you mentioned some very interesting politicians in that, that answer. Obviously, we've got Trump, Clinton, Nixon. Is there is there a Fred that holds all politicians together, or is it across the board? Um, I would have to say it's across the board in the, you know, in my book where I looked at every U.S. president ever, uh, you had to take into account a lot of factors and one would be the rise of TV. And so the amount of smiling we see from presidents has certainly gone up as they mug for the camera. Uh, but it's also true that, you know, dental hygiene has improved. George Washington at his second inaugural had one tooth left. All the, all the rest were wooden teeth. Um, so, you know, life has gotten better in some ways. I would sh- say that anger is um, more prevalent in politicians than it would be in the general society. Uh, after all, politics is sometimes referred to as a blood sport. So it does involve a lot of attack and counterattack, and that can be true. Um, so, so those would be a couple of characterizations. Yeah, it has to wear on you, too, because that's all you're always – being attacked or being on the attack when you're in politics? Well, yeah, I, I'll tell you a story from a different industry where you also get attacked. So I did some work for the Minnesota Timberwolves, uh, who generally, you know, stink as a team. And uh, I was trying to help them out. And the general manager at the time, we met for dinner one time, and he sat down and he chose a seat so his back was against the wall. And I said, well, that's really interesting. You know, Bill Hick- Hickok used to do that in the Wild West. Uh, so that no one could shoot at him, you know, from behind. And he said, exactly. He said, I'm the general manager. I've got the media after me. I got the angry fans who want a winner. Uh, you know, life is tough. That is interesting to think about. I mean, to have that, that chip on your shoulder, I guess, is the way to say that. Well, there's the, the old Far Side cartoon where, you know, the deer has a bullseye on its chest and the other deer says, bummer of a birthmark hell. <laughs> that, that's that's kind of like being a general manager. Because I, I I, maybe it's just my naivety to a degree here, but you think about those jobs, you think about those high-end sports executives who you know, what, watch games for a living, right? And you think they have this great life, but we all know that's not true. But it's still fun to think about. Well, I think they do have a kind of a great life. I'd be willing to put up with the stress for half a million for, for, uh, you know, spending the owner's money and, uh, putting some players on the field or court. Um, I, I'd take the job if offered. I'll put it that way. <laughs> what would, I mean, we've talked about sports. We've talked about politics. We've talked, well, we haven't really talked about Hollywood. We've kind of danced around it because there's no real substance there, but let's hear it there. Um, I said it. You didn't have to. Uh, which one of these industries is hardest to read? Hardest to read. Um, wow. 
Interesting question. I, I guess I'd have to go with the media types who are on TV every day because they are, you know, trained in many cases to be, you know, uh, cheerful uh, or to be studiously as neutral as they can if they're an anchor on a news show. I mean, that's changed. It depends on whether you're talking about the three, you know, traditional channels or the three cable channels. I, I once talked to a journalist who had described the three main channels as the three blind mice for failing to pick up how society was changing. And I said to him, I said, well, what's your metaphor for the three cable channels? And he said, well, I'll have to get back to you on that one. I was very disappointed by that answer. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that, that's a disappointing answer. I was hoping for something great there. Yeah, I wanted the three rats, or I don't, I don't know what it was going to be, but I, I wanted something. Um, you know, not, not just, uh, you know, punting. So uh, the question is about the White House Task Force on the, the Coronavirus, but I'm sure you've read a few people as we've been going through this. Do you see a lot of truth, deception, or just concern, or how's that all coming together for you? Oh, it's been really interesting. I don't have my notes right in front of me, but I went through at one point and looked at the people who were most often, you know, stuck on the podium <laughs> during those interminable uh, conferences. So let's start with Fauci, who's the most famous. And Fauci definitely showed alarm in some cases. He was amused in the most disappointed, wicked sense with some of what he heard. Uh, that's why he famously covered his mouth in one instance because he was trying to hide a, an ironic smile. But th there is consternation, there's surprise, there's attempts at being amused by the whole bloody mess. Bix, uh, I think her name is Deborah Bix, uh, tends to either go to this really grim, bitter smile as her way of trying to soldier through the mess, um, you know, or she'll look frightened. Uh, her eyes will go really wide. I think it's her left eyebrow shoots up, and that's where she goes. The guy who's, I think, in charge of the FDA is actually a former pharma, pharma, uh, you know, pharma industry lobbyist. And, you know, he's probably pretty attuned to the political game and dance of all this. So he tends to be amused. He doesn't tend to get a whole, riled a whole lot by it. Then you've got uh, Jim Clapper down at the CDC, who's probably a really earnest guy who, being in Atlanta, not D.C., is probably not as used to the political dance. And uh, he's just kind of caught flat-footed sometimes. His mouth will fall open with surprise <laughs> at what he's hearing said at the podium. Uh, he definitely looks concerned. He looks downcast, like, oh, my God, we're never going to get out of this. Um, so there, there you kind of got an array of characters. You know, I used to watch The Three Stooges as a, as a boy. Uh, now, now I watch it, but it's part of the national news. <laughs> I'm always surprised. I live in Pennsylvania. We were talking about that earlier. And when my, that, my governor didn't address, like, have a live press conference for, like, two months. And then when he did, I swear, nobody prepped him at all, like, for some of the questions that were coming. Because he always just stumbles out of the gate. Like, it's like, what do you mean? A county wants to go green, and we're not we're not letting them. Like, like you hadn't heard it before. Like nobody prepped you. Like seriously, hire somebody to ask some questions to you before you go out there and look like a politician. Well, think about <laughs> think about Bloomberg, who spent gazillion dollars, goes on the stage for his first debate, and seemingly no one dared tell him that if you smirk and look hostile and imperial, uh, basically the voters are going to hate your guts. 
and uh, the other people at the you know on stage are going to go after you too. By the way, um, he seemed co- totally caught by surprise. I'll go back to a wonderful thing that I remember. A real footnote to the 2008 race. Initially, there was a former Alaska senator, U.S. senator named Mike Gavel, who ran briefly. And at one point in one of the debates, he said, you know, when I first got elected to the Senate, I couldn't believe that I had managed to get there. And I said to myself, how could you possibly be in the U.S. Senate? He said, after a couple of weeks in the Senate, I said to myself, how did they get here? <laughs> Isn't that the greatest thing? Okay, so you mentioned Bloomberg, and I guess this is the, the, the basis for my question. I mean, we all have these things that we do that are quote-unquote ugly. I mean – give us away a little bit, no matter where we are and what setting. I mean, there's a setting where we're, you know, we should probably be a little more presented. Can we train ourselves to fool you? Um, not especially. I mean, again, the face is the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin. So typically when people try to fool, they will try to, you know, paste on the smile. But you can look at the rhythm of the smile, for instance, or any expression. It should be like a wave that gathers breaks on the shore after having you know, a high point. So it's got that rhythm to it, that, that you know, momentum that it has. And so a unnatural smile, for instance, will come on too quickly. It might linger too long, off too abruptly. I used to cause, call Hillary Clinton's smile uh, the guillotine smile because when she was done using it, it would just drop off her face very unnaturally like she was putting it back in her purse. Uh, she had gotten done using it. Uh, Mitt Romney, who is really getting to be an interesting guy as he, you know, goes in front of the cameras these days, you know, was a terrible candidate in 2012. I used to call him the energizer bunny of social smiles because a, a real expression should last no more than four seconds on your face, almost always. And, you know, he would plaster, plaster on some smile that would just go on and on and on like the energizer bunny. So you are looking for the rhythm of the expression. You're looking to see if other emotions creep in or get you know suppressed. Uh, you're looking to see if the expression is pulled onto the face kind of unilaterally, like they're forcing it so that it's more pronounced on one side of the face or other. So these are all things that give you away. And then there's a term of art called the micro-expression, the fact that someone might show a reaction really briefly. We could be talking one-tenth of a second. Well, I've done facial coding for 20-plus years. I lived in Italy as a boy, probably one of the reasons why I'm a facial coder, because I didn't know the language at first. I had to read my classmates at a Italian fishing village and figure out what in the world was going on. Um, those little micro-expressions can be really helpful as the true story of something. Dang, I was hoping to learn how to fool you so we could I could run for office and be happy and be the greatest candidate ever, but... Oh, but you are. You are, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they say that the check's in the mail or do I need to get the shovel. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> which one take that. Probably a little bit of both, but definitely the shovel. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm just just trying to keep you lively there, you know. Yeah, I was gonna say. Um, no, it's it is interesting to watch people though, especially when they're interacting with somebody new they don't know. How can you? Yeah, or, or they're trying to impress, or or they're yeah. on a first date, or you know, a whole bunch of things. Yeah, I was gonna say. So, how, how do you quickly, like first first glance, so to speak? How can you tell how excited? I don't want to say excited, but that's kind of the word that's coming to mind. 
the person is to be engaged at that point? Is that just all in the um, – obviously it's all in the face, but what should I be looking for? Well, uh, I'd go back to a saying by George Orwell since I mentioned the novel 1984 earlier. Uh, he has a saying that uh, by the age of 50, a man has the face he deserves because we have muscle memory. Uh, we have habitual expressions that really can characterize us. So – most people have a signature expression or two that they often go to and default to. Um, so, you know, you might pick that up readily. Uh, if they're excited to meet you on that first date to stay with your example, uh, you'd hope for some emotional engagement that they're not Bernie Madoff and couldn't care less about you. Um, yeah, maybe their eyes go wide because they're a little surprised and alert and, you know, wondering what will happen on the date. So that's nice. It shows maybe got a little bit of edginess or excitement to it. Uh, you're sure going to hope for some, some, uh, smiles that they actually like your jokes. Otherwise you're probably in trouble. Uh, but you really have to look for the aversive reactions as much as anything else. You know, is there anger? Uh, is there disgust? Is there sadness, fear? I mean, those are the things where, I mean, I'll give you an instance uh, between marriages I was dating and being a facial coder makes it particularly interesting. <laughs> and I'm, I'm out with a woman and we're in a coffee shop. I think it might have been a Starbucks. And anyway, uh, so by and by, she says, so what do you do for a living? And I start to describe it. And she just is frightened to death. And I say to myself, well, this date is over. I don't care what she says to me. You know, this is the end of the road. And I, truthfully, I didn't really necessarily like her either, so I was okay with that. But what really got me was I wanted to say to her, why does that frighten you so much? You know, are you $100,000 into credit card debt? Are you a shopaholic? Do you have a drinking problem? I mean, what are you trying to hide? It, Where it's, it's hard to believe the general manager of the Minnesota Temple has got this reaction out of this woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was him, not me. Exactly. <laughs> She adored me. We, we were, we were married. We just, we left the coffee shop. We went right to the, you know, the registry of the courthouse. Yes. So we're 50, uh, 57 minutes in and we finally get the resting bitch face. That's, that's impressive. Ah, uh, yes. That should be your next book, by the way, if I could sell. Well, I, I was talking at Best Buy and there was 800 people in the room and finally with a big, you know, titter in the crowd, someone said, so I've got to ask you about this term. And I knew what was coming. And my first response is, well, how about, you know, hopelessly bastard face? We don't ever discuss that. Um, so I, I think it comes down to that we often judge women either by their beauty or that they are the real friendly nurturing type. And so resting bitch face often arises in a model who is indeed very attractive and therefore maybe doesn't feel like she has to, uh, you know, compromise, quote unquote, or be friendly or nice. And what you might see is, you know, a real lack of emoting, just like Bernie Madoff, or you might see a sneer either with that corner of the mouth or the upper lip flaring a bit, um, you know, some haughtiness, some anger. And, you know, that puts off a lot of people. Uh, on the other hand, I can tell you that guys show more contempt than women by about a ratio of two to one in my book, Famous Faces Decoded. So um, that's why I said there's certainly a male equivalent. Well, we got to come up with a catchy name for it. So we've got about a 90 seconds left. You uh, you gave the praise early on in the show. Are you still happy to have been here? Oh, absolutely. This was a fun conversation. <laughs> I mean, I, I tormented you. I called you a liar at least three times. I mean, you know, and, and you can't punch me because you're near Pittsburgh and I'm in St. Paul. I mean, this is fabulous. Hey, if you look at my last name, it's right in there. Liar's part of the name, bud. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> your, your parents didn't brand you very well, you know. That's not generally an attribute that helps you move ahead in life. Yeah, I was going to say, Mallard with an eye that's silent doesn't help either, yes. <laughs> it's all bad branding. That's okay. Life happens. <laughs> well, well and, D- D- Dan Hill's not so great either because there's a Canadian singer, Dan Hill, who had the song Sometimes When We Touch. And when I lived in uh, Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts for a year, one of my housemates adored that record and played it every day to the point where I wanted to gag. So, um, you know, I- I'm not sure I got branded so well either. <laughs> well, Dan, it has been a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks, Jim. Have a good evening. That's Dan. Dan Hill there, everybody. What a what a great show. And he did call me a liar three times, and I'm perfectly fine with that, which is cool. So, hey, I hope you all enjoyed tonight's show. If you, ha- Like I said at the beginning of the show, subscribe, like, share, all that fun stuff. If you haven't done it, you should. You know the drill by now, right? You've listened to other shows. If you haven't listened to other shows, hey, go check them out. They're great, too. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.